Isaiah chapter 26. Let's begin reading with verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. O Lord, our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also will disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Amen. We'll end our reading from God's word there at the end of Isaiah chapter 26. As we dip into a complicated portion of God's word, those listening may well be forgiven if hearing the reading they think, I have no idea what's going on. I don't actually know what that passage that we just read is about. That's a very understandable reaction. We're dipping into a portion of the book of Isaiah that really runs from chapter 24 through chapter 27. As of chapter 13 in his book, Isaiah has been dealing with the question of the relationship of God's people to the rest of the world. And as you can imagine, that is a relationship that has its complexities. It has its ups and downs. There's a good side to it, and there's a bad side. There's a rough side to it as well. And that leads to complexity in the way that Isaiah deals with it, because it's not just one thing. There's more than one thing. There is judgment, for instance. There's judgment for the enemies of God's people. But it's more complicated than that. There's also mercy for the enemies of God's people, for the repentant enemies of God's people. But it's also more complicated than that with regard to God's people themselves. There's judgment for God's people. And yet, in the midst of judgment, there is also mercy. So none of this is just easy. 
you have to pay attention as you work through. And there are shifts of speaker and other things that make it a little bit difficult to follow. But let's try to zoom in a little bit. Let's try to understand in a broad way what is happening. Well, Isaiah, the prophet, of course, had a very long ministry. He lived through good kings and bad kings. He lived through good times and bad times. And one of the burdens of being a prophet was the awareness that bad times were coming. Judgment would approach. The northern kingdom was carried into captivity during Isaiah's lifetime. The Babylonians were introduced to the scene, and it happened after Isaiah's death. But not too long after Isaiah's death, the southern kingdom was carried into captivity by Babylon. So it's Isaiah's part to prophesy, to bring God's word to God's people at a time when judgment was just over the horizon. Part of Isaiah's ministry, then, is communicating to them the reasons for judgment. And there were many reasons for judgment, but a large part of it was that there was a great deal of religious hypocrisy. There was a great deal of, quote-unquote, serving God. There was a great deal of religious ritual. There was a great deal of going through the motions. But that was joined to a great deal of unreality because their religious ritual didn't actually change the way they behaved. It didn't make them more kind. It didn't make them more considerate. It didn't make them less greedy or grasping. And so their religious ritual, their going through the motions, could not screen them from God's judgment when they were not behaving appropriately. When they're living in the land of uprightness, as it says in verse 10, and yet they're still dealing unjustly, what do you expect to happen? Judgment becomes inevitable. Now, Isaiah is full of glorious promises. He's full of great comfort, sometimes a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Isaiah is called the fifth gospel being added to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because there's so much of the light of God's grace in it. There's so much about the Lord Jesus Christ 700 years before his arrival on the scene, but nonetheless, very truly, very genuinely there. And yet, there's also the other side. Which leads me to point out that Isaiah is very realistic. His promises are not pie in the sky by and by. They're not based on ignoring or neglecting the sad realities, the tragic realities, the sinful and upsetting realities. Isaiah's very clear-eyed. He knows, as he himself says when he's commissioned to become a prophet. He has that great vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He acknowledges his own personal sin, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knows what the society around him is like. And so Isaiah is very realistic. He knows that there is sin. He knows that there is judgment. He knows that there is sorrow and tragedy and loss and difficulty. He's very realistic. You know, that reminds me of Robert also. He had a strong faith, but that didn't lead him to put his head in the sand, to hide from the hard realities of life. And even this year, as he languished, as he suffered, 
at Magnolia Place, we were able to discuss some of those hard realities. We discussed the reality that a service like this one was coming in the fairly near future. He knew that. He was okay with that. He didn't give me a whole lot of direction. He gave me a little bit of guidance. He told me Psalm 23 was his favorite passage of scripture, so we used that. He told me that he would trust me to choose the passage to preach on. He thought that it would be edifying. And the main thing, the biggest thing he told me was, you make sure that that service glorifies God. That was what he wanted. He didn't want a service that was all about him. He didn't want a service that said how great he was. He wanted a service that reminded people that God is glorious. And that really does connect with our passage. We read verse 8 earlier, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. And then notice this, the desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. Now, that word remembrance can be translated as reputation or memorial. In other words, it's how God is known. What did the people for whom Isaiah spoke? What did the people who entered into Isaiah's spirit desire? They desired to know the name of God. No, that's just not knowing what to pronounce. That's not just knowing syllables. That's knowing who God is. And it's making him known. It's God revealing himself through his actions, through his word, so that what we remember, what we call to mind, when we think about God is true and accurate. The desire of our soul is for your name. That's the last thing he let me know he wanted was a service that would glorify God. Hopefully that is what we will do today as we zoom in especially on verses 11 through 12 but we're still setting the context here. The people for whom Isaiah speak desire the Lord's name, desire that it will be made known, that he will be known accurately. And so they desire God in the night. By their spirit, they seek God early. And they expect that when God acts in judgment, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. This is a message for everybody. It's not confined to a narrow few. But when God's judgments are put on display, when God acts as he does to restore right and order, then those who live on the earth, who have gone astray, have an opportunity to learn. Now, the reality is not everybody takes advantage of that opportunity. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. It goes on to say, In verse 10, the opportunity is extended, and some take advantage of it, but not everybody does. And that brings us to where we want to focus in verses 11, 12, and 13. Each one of these verses begins with calling upon God, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, verse 11, Lord, you will establish peace, verse 12, Lord, our God, verse 13. What is happening here? Well, Isaiah, in the name of the people of God, is praying. He's calling upon God. On the one hand, he is lamenting. 
those who see God's judgments but don't really see. They are exposed to the information, but they don't perceive its importance. They don't embrace it. They don't believe. They hear the message, but their hearts are hard. When your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed. What is he saying? Well, he's saying there's two ways of seeing. There's the way where you hear things, where you're aware of them, where the information comes to your mind. But that's not the same as receiving it. That's not the same as embracing it. That's not the same as accepting it with a believing heart. People are given the opportunity. They're told about God. But if they don't embrace the message, well, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. There is a judgment that comes. Isaiah is very realistic about that. His God is a God of judgment. Now, we're going to focus on verse 12. So let me skip over it so we can come back to it in order to narrow down our focus on that. In verse 11, they've lamented, they've confessed the hard-heartedness of some of the people that they know. In verse 13, they resolve, they express instead their own determination. O Lord our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us. Now that could mean a couple of things. On the one hand, they could be thinking back to times of foreign oppression. They could be thinking back to when they were slaves in the land of Egypt. They could be thinking back to the period of the book of Judges when foreign invaders came and dominated in Israel. But they could also be thinking about times when their own loyalty was imperfect. They could be thinking about all the times that as a nation they lapsed into idolatry, that they invoked gods besides the Lord. Because the one you invoke as God is the one who has dominion over you. If that's what they have in mind, which to me seems more likely, what they're saying now is in contrast, in contrast to how we have been in the past, in contrast to those who remain hard-hearted among us, we will only make mention of your name. In other words, from now on, we are going to be loyal. We are going to cling to the Lord. We are not going to be back and forth, up and down. We're going to be steadfast in seeking and serving the Lord. And that brings us to the middle invocation here that we want to focus on, verse 12, where they say, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. Here there's an expression of confidence. Lord, you will establish peace for us. And there's a reason for that expression of confidence. For you have also done all our works in us. So to break it down, to make it simple, we have what God will do and we have why God will do it. What God will do, he will establish peace. Now, this idea of peace is a tremendous theme within the book of Isaiah, as well as within the scripture as a whole. You have it already in this chapter in verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You have it cropping up again in a different way in chapter 57, where God says there is no peace for the wicked. So what is the idea of peace here? Well, the idea of peace is of a magnificent rest, of an abundance, of a provision of all things necessary. All things necessary, not just for bare existence, but all things necessary for flourishing, all things necessary for an existence marked by joy. And that is the confidence with which they look to the Lord. Lord, you will 
establish peace for us. Now, they've been talking about the reality of judgment. They've been talking about the reality of sin. They've been talking about the reality of calamity and hard-heartedness. They've been talking about sorrow and difficult things. They will go on to talk about death in verse 14, again in verse 19. The chapter winds up with the acknowledgement that the ground, the earth, is not going to cover over the blood of those who have been murdered. The earth is going to speak up and point out where the bodies are buried, so to speak, in a call for judgment. The Lord is coming out of his place, but with indignation in judgment. In the middle of all of that, without in any way denying or minimizing that, they say, they express this confidence, Lord, you will establish peace for us. They expect peace in a world of sin. They expect peace in a time of distress. They expect peace even in the middle of judgment. Now, God does give peace even in the middle of trial and tribulation. Paul speaks about this in the New Testament where he tells us not to be anxious for anything but by prayer and supplication to let our requests be made known unto God with thanksgiving and the peace of God. That passes all understanding will keep your minds and hearts through Christ Jesus. Or again, Isaiah himself says it here in verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What is the way to peace now in the midst of the storm before the judgment is over? While there's still sorrow, while there's still bereavement, what peace is available? Well, perfect peace. According to verse 3. Now, the expression in Hebrew there is peace, peace. Hebrew does that when they want to intensify, when they want to explain that something is really full of its own quality, that something is very much itself. They'll say it twice. So you could read this You will keep him in peace, peace. What kind of peace? Peaceful peace, peace filled peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Well, how do you get to that? You get to that by trust, because he trusts in you. And so it's followed up with the exhortation, trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. God does hold out peace to us before the end, before everything gets sorted out. While we're still in the middle of confusion and turmoil, God holds out the prospect of peace to all. Who trust. Now, peace is obviously then not the same thing as the absence of all of those hardships. The hardships are here. Our hearts are heavy this morning. We do find sorrow and grief. But we can find that sorrow and grief in a way that doesn't fundamentally dislocate us, in a way that doesn't make us forget our principles, our boundaries, our purpose, our calling. We can experience grief and sorrow without losing peace. But it takes trust. It takes trust in the Lord whose actions are sometimes very strange to us in order to have that peace. But that peace is not just now a little eye of the storm where we can find stability trusting God no matter what is going on around us or to some extent within us. It's also future. It's something to look forward to where there is 
a restoration. And here, of course, I'm thinking especially of verse 19. They've expressed how in all their efforts, in all their work, they've accomplished nothing. They've been through labor pains with nothing to show for it. No baby on the other end. They've accomplished no deliverance in the earth. But then there's a word of promise. Your dead shall live. And then there's something that calls for explanation. It says, together with my dead body. The word for body or corpse there is singular, but the verb is plural. So the idea here is that both God and the prophet are connected to the dead. Speaking to God, Isaiah says, you're dead. The ones who have fallen asleep in Christ would be New Testament language for it. But then he also speaks about his corpse. But remember, the verb is plural. So it's a singular verb standing in for a plural subject. In other words, it's the same people. You're dead and my corpse or my corpse says, as you could render it. It's two ways of referring to the same group of people. So what is Isaiah talking about in verse 19? Well, he's talking about those who have died. That much is very obvious by the repetition. But what does he say about them? He says, they shall live. The very corpse will be raised up. God does give peace in the present, but we also look forward to God giving peace in the future, in the resurrection. This is a very basic, Christian doctrine, but it's also one of the most revolutionary ideas that you can come across in the Christian church. It's not just that death is not the end. There's lots of people who believe that death is not the end. If you believe in reincarnation, you believe that death is not the end. It's just time for chapter two of the same book or chapter three or chapter nine million, whatever it may be, wherever you are on the cycle. If you believe in any kind of afterlife, You don't believe that death is, strictly speaking, the end. So the Christian idea of resurrection is much more than that death is not the end. That's true, but there's more to it than that. The Christian idea of resurrection is that death is an enemy. Death is an enemy that has gained power because of sin. If it were not for sin, death would have no place in this world. So when there is resurrection, when body and soul are reunited and the body is raised not with the same qualities of weakness, of vulnerability to disease and decay and ultimately death that it had, but when that body is raised in glory with new qualities that suit it for a life of perfect holiness, a life without sin, but also for a life that will never end. When the body is raised in that way, death is defeated, or rather the fact that death is defeated is fully demonstrated because the spoils of death have been taken away from it. What death had conquered over, what death was ruling is taken from its grasp, is liberated, delivered completely. So when Isaiah says, 
your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. He's expressing a confidence for himself, for all who die trusting in the Lord. Not just that this is not the end, but that this is the prelude to something very much better. Something that only God could do where body and soul are reunited, are glorified, and we are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Now, that great, that revolutionary doctrine means some things. It means, on the one hand, that this material world is not just an illusion, is not a prison that we can't wait to get out of. This material world is good, though it has been corrupted by sin and all the consequences that sin brought with it. And so we're looking for the material world, including our bodies, to be restored and glorified, to be made what they ought to be, to rise to their true potential. And so we're not dismissive or contemptuous of the body. We understand the importance that it has. It's one reason we practice respectful ceremonies around dealing with the bodies of the deceased. We respect the body. We expect it to rise. We expect it to come back glorified and made just absolutely amazing. Words fail when you try to find a way to set out what that will be like. So Isaiah can expect that God will give peace. He will give peace in the midst of all this difficulty and trial, heartache now, but he will also give peace, peace in the form of resurrection, in the form of the restoration of all things, as the Bible says in the book of Acts. But then we come also to see why God will do it. So zooming back in on verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us. That's the confidence of the trusting people of God. But why? What gives them that confidence? Well, here's their reason. For you have also done all our works in us. Now, the connection between those two things might not immediately be apparent. You might read the two parts of verse 12 and not be sure what one part has to do with the other. Well, let's try to break it down a little bit and fill in the meaning here. How did the reality that God had done all their works in them give them confidence that he would establish peace? Well, according to this simple principle, God finishes what he starts. God is not a halfway God who starts a project and gets bored and leaves it alone, forgets about it shoves it under the bed and never looks at it again. We can have a tendency to do that. We can have a tendency to bite off more than we can chew. We can have a tendency to start something. We can have a tendency to have the best of intentions that we're going to carry it on. And yet, you know, five years later, it's still sitting there undone. No progress made. I have a couple of projects like that myself. But God is not like that. God finishes what he starts. So what God has already done for these people is a proof to them, is a reason for them to believe that he will still establish peace both now and in the future. 
But what had God done for them? Well, there's a couple of ways that we can understand this verse, and I'm in favor of understanding it as broadly as possible. You have also done all our works in us. In other words, every good thing that they had, God had done for them. This joins the general teaching of Scripture. Every good gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James 1, 17. You can relate it to the work of creation. Why did these people exist? Well, because God had made them. You can relate it to the great works of their history. Why had they become a separate people? Why had they been delivered from slavery in Egypt? Why had they been brought into and given possession of the promised land? Why had a king after God's own heart been raised up to rule over them? Why did they have a temple where they knew how to worship God acceptably? And so on and so forth. Because God had done it for them. Whether you think about creation, whether you think about providence, whether you think about redemption, in all of those spheres, God had been active for them. And God would not start and then stop. Paul expresses this confidence also in the New Testament. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not some arbitrary deadline. That's when it's done. When Christ comes back and we're raised from the dead, what more is there to do? God's work has then reached its culmination, its perfection. So this great principle that God finishes what he starts gives them confidence that he will establish peace for them. But we can also apply that individually, personally. You notice what it says. You have also done all our works in us, not just what was outside of them, not just what had been done for them, but also what they themselves had done. Every good thing that we do is also God's gift. And that, again, is verified repeatedly in Scripture. We can think about Psalm 68, where we're told, Your God has commanded your strength. How is it that we have the desire, that we have the ability, that we have the opportunity to do any good thing? It is because God has commanded it. God has given it to us. Or Paul says to the Philippians again, to you it is given not only to suffer for Christ, but also to believe in him. Their suffering for Christ, what they did for the sake of Christ, as indeed their very faith in Christ were God's gift. Or again in Philippians, Paul puts it this way. He says, it's God who works in you to will and to do. For his good pleasure. So what does that mean? Well, it means we never take the credit. We never say, well, God owes me because I've been so good. God has to give me this or that because, look, I'm trying really hard. Well, if you're trying really hard, praise God for it. It's his gift. It doesn't constitute a claim we can file with God. You owe me reimbursement for so many good works. Because the ability, the desire, the opportunity to do those good works is itself already his gift. If God dealt with us in that way, he could invoice us for all the good works he's enabled us to do. But thank God he's not that kind of a bookkeeper. He has very accurate accounts, but he doesn't use it to charge us. Rather, 
It's a record of his goodness, of his overflowing goodness, of his faithfulness to us. You will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. You see how that's working. The fact that God has already done something good in them, the fact that God has raised them spiritually to life is a guarantee that God will establish peace for them. The fact that God has given them that desire that they talked about in verses 8 and 9 to wait for him, to seek him, that's a demonstration, that's a proof that God will continue to work in them until he has established peace for them. Because God isn't keeping score of what he's done for us in order to make sure that he extracts from us the equivalent. Instead, we remember what God has done for us and in us to boost our confidence that he has not finished yet. Where one good thing has come, there are more good things to follow. God had established some good. He had done some works in them, and they don't specify, but we can fill it in from the context. But those things were a foretaste. Those things were an anticipation of the greater truth to come. So has God given you the privilege of hearing the gospel? Has God given you the ability to open and to read his word? Do you hear his truth? Well, there certainly are those who harden their hearts against that. But if you don't, if you trust, if you receive, if you seek the Lord, if you resolve to wait patiently for him, then you can wait in absolute confidence that more good things are coming. That's one of the things we always think about in a funeral service, especially at the time of burial, the casket gets placed into the ground. It's covered over. Some flowers are placed on top. We go away. Have we forgotten? Have we abandoned the person whose body we buried? No. We're waiting in hope, in confident hope of the resurrection still to come. What God has started, he will finish. And one of the great messages of this section of the book of Isaiah is that even death, does not stop God's work. We die. Christians die. Believers die. It's true. However faithful, however fruitful, however diligent, however committed, however godly they were, they still die. But that's not the end. That's not a hindrance to God's work. That's part of the way he has chosen to be glorified for how he does all our works in us. And so just over the page, chapter 25, verse 8, we read these beautiful words about God. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There is peace in the midst of all our difficulties. Looking forward, to when God will swallow up death forever. As we say goodbye to Robert, as we lay him to rest in the grave, we do so in the confidence that the work that God started in his life, nothing, not even death, 
will prevent God from carrying it through to the end. Amen.